The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media presents Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. Tonight in America's crime crisis, a bit of deja vu. The insistence by some local governments and state governments on putting suspects back on the street almost as soon as they are arrested is contributing, according to authorities, to a rash of violent crime throughout the nation. Without a bail system, the onus of babysitting these accused released would fall on law enforcement, which is already understaffed and underfunded. Businesses are bolting from areas like Antelope Valley after repeat offenders are driving away customers. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. It started with the coronavirus zero bail. Then last month, the state Supreme Court ruled it's unconstitutional to require defendants to remain behind bars if they can't afford bail. Sacramento County Court saying in part, although the court understands the concerns expressed, we are mandated to maintain a bail schedule and bail system that's consistent with the U.S. and California constitutions. But business districts say more needs to be done. Until we have the chronic nuisance offender program back in place, until we have more tools, the problem's only going to grow. It's only going to get bigger. Well, I've been a prosecutor for going on 27 years in Yolo County. And just to you know, put it in context, Yolo actually borders Sacramento County uh, to our east and to the west is the Bay Area. And so I've been the elected DA in Yolo for going on 17 years. And so now that makes me one of the longest serving DAs in California currently. I can't believe I'm saying that. But, you know, it's um, it's been a great career. I got into the profession because I felt passionate about fighting for victims of crime. And I also felt passionate about trying to improve things in California, to improve public safety, to improve the efficiency of the system. And so, you know, I've told people that, uh, yes, I'm committed to victims, I'm committed to justice, but I've also always been committed to trying to do smart reforms, things that actually improve the overall justice system. And uh, that's kind of how I've stayed in office all these years in a county that many would say is very progressive. I've managed to, um, you know, keep getting reelected by, you know, focusing on a balanced approach to the whole public safety dilemma. You know, medium-sized county in California, which I, I always have to qualify that, you know, California is so huge, as you know. I mean, our population is what, 39 million. We have more people in California than all of Canada. We're bigger than Australia. We're bigger than every state combined west of Texas. We're a massive state. And so, you know, my county is 225,000. And because of our proximity to Sacramento County and Interstate 80 and Interstate 5, which run right through my county, we have a high crime rate. And we've always had a high incidence of gang violence and drug trafficking and human trafficking and gun trafficking. And so my career was mostly focused on going after organized crime, gangs, guns, and drugs. And I've spent 
you know, most of the, the early part of my career personally handling large gang cases involving, you know, murders, unfortunately, uh, often of innocent people who were gunned down in um, the streets of my county. Uh, I was the first DA in Northern California to pursue a gang injunction against a notorious street gang that actually operated in both my county and your county, but they were based in Yolo and that was the Broderick Boys Criminal Street Gang. And so I broke ground on that going all the way back to 2005 and then proceeded to prosecute, you know, numerous um, murders over the years. You know, we've had, unfortunately, some real high profile cases that I've been personally involved in as the prosecutor, including one that was called the Halloween Homicides, which did happen in 2005 in Woodland. And that was where um, four people, kids who were just sitting in front of their house on Halloween were approached by a masked man who pulled out a gun and shot them as they sat in the back of a truck eating candy. And two of the, uh, the, the males, two of the young men were killed and two of the young girls were uh, seriously injured. Uh, I personally prosecuted that case. It, it ended up involving about seven gang members and it was an organized hit on one of the teenage boys who they believed had wronged them in a, in a drug deal and everyone else was victims. So, you know, that was a big case for me. It was a trial that went on nine months. It involved capital punishment. Uh, every single legal issue you could imagine came up in that. And since then, um, I've handled, you know, numerous cases involving the murder of police officers. I personally prosecuted um, the killer of CHP officer Andy Stevens, who was gunned down on a traffic stop in 2000. And uh, boy, was it 2006 when he you know, made a traffic stop and as he walked up and said good morning to the man that he pulled over, he was shot point blank in the face and killed. That was a death penalty case that I personally handled. And um, the person was convicted and sentenced to death row, or sent to death row. And then shortly on the heels of that, actually ironically, the day after that killer was transported to death row, I received a phone call in the middle of the night of another police officer in Yolo County, Deputy Sheriff Tony Diaz, who was also murdered by uh, another man during a car stop. And so I personally handled that prosecution, which resulted in a death sentence. So I've been involved in everything as a prosecutor over the years, uh, definitely specializing in the the more high profile gang and um, crimes against officers. But now, you know, as the DA, I really am more involved in day to day, you know, running to the office. We have 40 deputy DAs. So we're not, we're not tiny, you know, a lot of offices in the, in California and the country, I think the average prosecutor's office is less than 10 deputy DAs. And you know that. So, you know, on a national scale, you know, Yolo County, we're actually in the top 15% size-wise. But again, California is so huge. People say, oh, well, it's little old Yolo County. Well, we're not that little. And the other thing that, you know, has put Yolo County, I guess, on the map a little bit is because of our proximity to Sacramento and the media market there, we get a lot of coverage. And so we do a lot of things that get picked up by the, the media in Sacramento. The Capitol is right there, obviously. And I have been 
drafted on multiple occasions to go to the Capitol and to fight for victims and to fight for the issues that both you and I are, care deeply about when it comes to you know, keeping our communities safe. The story of California's criminal justice reform experiments, in my mind, really started in 2011. And that was when something called AB 109, Assembly Bill 109, otherwise known as realignment, was passed by the legislature and signed by then Governor Brown. And what it did is it shifted state prisoner responsibility uh, from state prisons to the local counties. And it became the county's burden then to house in their jails uh, prisoners, people who had been convicted of some pretty serious crimes were brought back to all of our counties, you know, 58 counties in California. And all of a sudden, every county was bringing back state prisoners to house in their jail. That was the first. That was maybe the first pin that dropped. Then in 2014, maybe the biggest reform, quote unquote, reform disaster ever. And it was called um, Proposition 47, the Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act. And it uh, essentially decriminalized drug crimes and theft crimes, reduced them to felonies, from felonies to misdemeanors. And it was a bomb in California. And in my opinion, and I think you probably agree with me, I know most of our colleagues around the state would say that Proposition 47 is at the nucleus of so many of the problems we see today in California with the homelessness epidemic, the rampant thievery, the, the break-ins, the decay, it's all traceable to Proposition 47. And what was really sinister about that initiative is that it was given that title, the safe neighborhoods and schools population, and the description in the voter ballot by the attorney general. You know, that was one of the powers the attorney general has is to set the title and summary. And it was deceptive. I mean, I had people, no, it was crazy. I mean, I had people that were, you know, married to police officers. They were in the law enforcement family and they were coming up to me the day after that initiative was on the ballot and telling me, I voted for Proposition 47. Aren't you proud of me? And, and I just, I knew we were doomed when that started to happen because people were tricked. And, you know, when you walk around communities like, you know, in my county, we have a significant growing homeless population, most of whom are addicted. That's just a fact. And uh, Sacramento County is the same and every big city, every single person should be thinking Proposition 47 when they see that. That's what they should be thinking. Not, yeah, it's not a housing problem. That, that's a lie. Uh, it's mostly, almost entirely an addiction problem, and that was fueled by Proposition 47. But moving on, in 2016, there was another initiative on the ballot. It was Proposition 57. It was another one where voters were tricked, in my opinion, and it was essentially focused on the early release of prisoners from state prison. Early parole for you know, they promised it would be early parole for people who were reformed, who had rehabilitated. What they didn't tell the voters is those decisions would be made by some bureaucrat behind closed doors without uh, a, a public hearing, without real sufficient input from the victims and the parties. And what they also didn't tell the voters is there was a provision in Proposition 57 
which allowed the state prisons to award enhanced credits for early release. Administratively, they could basically make up the rules themselves. You know, the, the bureaucracy behind that is so deep that most of the public has no idea uh, how it happens or why it happens. But the reality has been that over 76,000 prison inmates benefited from enhanced credits, early release. They're not rehabilitated. They're being dumped onto the streets. And that has driven the problem, uh, especially the violent crime problem that we have seen. So you had Prop 47 that's driven the drug addiction, the homelessness, the decay. You've got Prop 57, which has driven the violent crime, the gangs, the guns. Those two together are at the root of so much of what we've seen in California in the last, you know, going back, what, nine years now. And, and I do this to people all the time. I say, let me tell you some of the crimes that are considered nonviolent under Prop 57. People who are getting out early because it's deemed nonviolent. Uh, human traffickers, people who've committed and been convicted of domestic violence, raping an unconscious person, these are nonviolent crimes. It's insane. And the voters didn't understand that. And they also didn't understand that just because let's say somebody's current crime, you know, was a nonviolent, like a burglary. Well, what if they have a whole history of violence? What if they've been committing violent crimes their whole life? Just this most recent crime was a burglary. Well, they're still a violent offender and they're benefiting from the early release and the early parole. And these are all the, the complex details that the voters didn't understand. And you know, that's what's happening right now is we're seeing a massive dump. You're right, a, a dump truck of very violent people from the state prisons into our communities. And the numbers are staggering how many prisoners have been released under these programs into California's communities. It's staggering. And now we're below, I think the latest number was 93,000 in the state prisons. And that's a, as a result of all of these policies that we've talked about. Um, we haven't yet talked about zero bail and how that, you know, and the COVID releases, which, you know, really resulted in um, another massive drop in the population. But just going back to something you said, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. Reform is a, a critical part of our job, getting people rehabilitated. And I know you did it when you were the DA in Sacramento. I do it now. I support mental health courts. I support drug courts. I support, you know, restorative justice programs in my county. I, re I support all of these different alternatives for people to get well, to be account held accountable, to get well, to make victims whole and to get them reintegrated. But, you know, it's, it's tough work. It's not, you know, you can't just assume somebody has gone to prison for a few months and they're better and dump them out on the streets. It doesn't work like that. And so uh, I, I feel like, you know, where California has failed and the policy really is in the rehabilitation side of the house. Even a state auditor just recently came out and said that California prisons have failed on rehabilitation the programming, the success, it's been dismal. And that's where I wish people had spent more time focusing on that. But to kind of go on with the history, you know, of wh why we are in this place we're, we're in now. Um, if it's okay with you, I'll just talk about, you know, what happened during COVID and the zero bail agreement. Yeah, so, you know, in 2020, as everyone knows, COVID hit 
And the Supreme Court of California, uh, represented by the Judicial Council, issued an emergency order for county jails. And, and the order was zero bail. And it wasn't just county jails. It was all law enforcement, all of California. And the order was, if somebody is arrested for a misdemeanor or a felony, certain felonies, not all felonies, that they should be released immediately without bail, zero bail. They don't have to post a bond. They don't have to go before a judge. There's no risk assessment. There's no ankle monitor. There's no supervision by a probation officer. They are just released. This was zero bail and it was implemented statewide in April of 2020 by order of the Judicial Council. And that started this train wreck of you know, people being released and many people who were released under zero bail went on within hours to commit new crimes, new felonies, murders in some situations, rapes, robberies, assaults. I mean, you and I, when you were the DA, when this happened and we were hearing the stories all over California about the zero bail catastrophe. Well, the unfortunate thing is, although the Judicial Council ended the zero bail policy that it had ordered within three months, it left it up to the counties to decide whether they wanted to continue with it on a local level. And my county did, and many counties, the vast majority of counties in California did continue with zero bail because of the political pressure, frankly, that was coming upon them from, you know, folks, the, the, the health community and others that believed, you know, we should just be releasing everybody from jail instead of taking the chance that anybody gets sick and dies. By the way, not a single person died in, a Yolo, in the Yolo County jail as a result of COVID ever. I mean, they seized upon the crisis to push an agenda of mass release. And that's what really angers me. I Look, COVID was real. We all know people who got really sick or died. I'm not belittling the, the fact that that was a real crisis and we all lived through it. What I'm attacking is the policy of zero bail was really, uh, it was seized upon by advocates to just, you know, fulfill their mission of getting as many people out of jail as fast as possible, right? We're catching the criminals, and the problem is we're catching them over and over again. The revolving door of the criminal justice system is infuriating many police chiefs. In Los Angeles, for instance, police arrested 14 people allegedly involved in the recent spate of armed robberies across the area, only to see every one of them immediately turned loose by the courts and back on the streets because of the zero bail policy that was introduced at the beginning of the pandemic as a way to reduce LA's crowded and therefore at risk prison population. They're being released very quickly without bail and they're not staying in prison. So we just continue to deal with the same, same people again and again. So the zero bail policy meant that they didn't have to post a dollar. They were just going to be released. So no money required. You're just automatically released from custody. You're given a, a piece of paper that says, come back to court on this date in the future. And that's it. You walk out the door, you're free. There are, when you hear zero bail in another context, what that can mean is that a person appears before the, the court and the court does an assessment and decides you're too dangerous to release on any condition. 
And so there's zero bail, meaning there's no amount of money that you can post that I'm going to deem sufficient for you to be released. And that's, you know, that's another way of, you know, saying zero bail in that context. But um, important to say that all bail decisions are made by the judges, by the courts, right? They're not made by the DAs. We're simply offering an opinion, advocating. But what I noticed, and again, I, I reference this, is when zero bail was put into effect and we started to see these violent crimes happening in our community, I thought the public needed to know about it. And I started to put out press releases. I know you did too as well in Sacramento. Um, announcing when some of these horrific crimes were committed by people on zero bail. And it was like every single day, it felt like we were putting out releases of, you know, murders. Uh, we had murders committed by people released on zero bail. Um, robberies, attempted murders, shootings, stabbings, domestic violence. It was really a nightmare scenario. At the same time, um, I committed to collecting every bit of data I could on every one of these individuals to put out a comprehensive report on zero bail once it was over. And ultimately that's what I did. And, um, you know, a bunch of things happen in between and, and I'll let you follow up on, on that, but we put out a comprehensive report in uh, August of 2022, which was, I call it zero bail, you know, report 1.0. And uh, that, that report was really important because it was used to kill a bill in the assembly, in the state legislature, uh, that was basically a zero bail bill. It was another attempt by the legislature to implement zero bail in California. We saw an 80% increase in the number of felons in possession of firearms within, within a year. I mean, it just went through the roof. and. You know, that's hard data. I was hearing from police officers and everyone who worked the streets that the number of guns out there was astronomical. It was insane. And of course, I'll just, you know, I don't need to remind you, but we were seeing horrific gun crimes committed through our communities. And, you know, you had a mass shooting on K Street in Sacramento, a very busy tourist restaurant nightlife area. And that was committed by a guy on uh, who was a Prop 57 beneficiary, um, stolen guns, ghost guns, multiple guns. And it's that was an extreme example, but it was happening all over our communities. We had a huge spike in murders with ghost guns. So it's all related. It was all related to just failed policy. And the failure to appear rate went through the roof. People just stopped coming back to court. Most of these people on zero bail, we later learned through the study, were recommitting. They were reoffending. It wasn't just that they were not coming back to court. No, they were going out and committing more crimes, some real horrific crimes. But, you know, that's the problem with a, the zero bail system where people are released without having to post any bond, without having to have any stake in, you know, an incentive to come back to court. You just see these massive failures to appear. And that's been well documented all over the country where, you know, whether it's in, you know, Harris County, Texas, where they've documented that. They even documented it in Chicago when they had a zero bail system, New York, uh, other places that have experimented uh, or implemented zero bail have seen that. And it's a real disservice to justice because you've got people now who've, you know, committed crimes, they've been ordered by the system to come back and they're just 
they don't care. They're, they're gone. So, and the reality is, you know, people say, oh, well, a warrant's issued. Why don't the cops just go out and find them on the warrant? Let me tell you something. <laughs> Officers are so busy. We're understaffed almost everywhere in California, and they are running from call to call most days. Nobody has time to go out and track down people who have failed to come to court. They just don't. You know, I'll just tell you, I, I've been pretty public about it. I have a family member who's a heroin addict that lived in your county. He still lives in your county. He committed dozens of crimes, misdemeanors, and was given the tickets, the notices to appear. And he laughed at it. He never went to court. He just kept victimizing and stealing and using drugs. And he's a poster child for Prop 47. And I don't, I don't blame anyone except the bad policymakers that pass these laws that allow somebody, you know, like him to, to, you know, he's going to die on the streets from an overdose or be killed. And it's heartbreaking because I love him. But, you know, getting back to the bail, you know, what happened in California in, in despite the fact that we were in this COVID lockdown and we had the zero bail experiment, experiment ongoing, there was an attempt by another lawmaker, Senator Bob Hertzberg out of LA to pass another bill in 2021 that would have implemented zero bail permanently. So in 2021, uh, the zero bail bill was being pushed by Hertzberg. Uh, as you said, Bonta was already the AG by then. And there was, he was getting momentum. It was moving along in the California legislature when something happened that changed everything. And that was um, a murder in your county. And I, you probably can't talk about it like I can, but I'm going to talk about it because I think it was a real game changer. And that's in September of 2021, a woman by the name of Kate Tibbetts uh, in Land Park, uh, just outside of downtown Sacramento, uh, was visited by a man who was a beneficiary of many of these bad policies, including zero bail. And he broke into her house and he raped her and he murdered her and he killed her dogs and burnt her house down. And that man, um, that story went national and uh, that crime stopped Hertzberg in his tracks. That bill was shelved at that point because there was so much pressure and notoriety on that case and the policies that had resulted in her murder. And it's tragic that that happened. Um, and I wish that that had been the end of the story on zero bail, but it's not. I tell you, again, I'm in a real progressive county. I've done a lot of things that probably you wouldn't have done in Sac County that involved reform movements, but I had closely analyzed the details on how things were going to play out, always with victims in mind. I don't want to create a policy that's going to result in more victimization. And the, the reality on a lot of these initiatives, especially that were passed, and I'll just use Proposition 57, which was the early release of prisoners and the credits that they're now getting secretly awarded. It has created a situation for, for me as a prosecutor and my team, my office, that when we now meet with victims of crime and they ask us, well, how long is the person going to do in prison if they're convicted? Our answer now for the vast majority is we can't tell you. Because even if once the judge issues his or her sentence, it's pretty much just a recommendation in California. It's a recommendation. It doesn't mean anything. 
because the system has been so corrupted now by these initiatives, which have given power to bureaucrats who are not elected, who work behind the scenes, and they are expediting, they're fast tracking the release of prisoners. It's a true statement. And it's, it's a real, you know, they look at us, victims look at us like, are you kidding me? So we, we ended up looking at all of the individuals who were released on zero bail during this experiment, the zero bail experiment. And in my county, there were 595 people who were released on zero bail. Those include, you know, felony crimes and misdemeanor crimes. And we looked at what happened. And what we found was that over 70% had recidivated. They had reoffended. many within days or weeks, most within months. Um, they committed crimes, as I mentioned, murder, attempted murder, robbery, domestic violence, rape. Uh, there was a long list of crimes they had committed. That first study that I released in August of 2022 was published. I made it public. I was totally transparent on it. I put it out and it was used by a lawmaker in Sacramento uh, on the floor of the assembly on the last day of session and the final hour, they used our study from Yolo County to help kill a, another Hertzberg bill, another Hertzberg bill that was designed to basically implement a form of zero bail. Uh, and that was a big deal that, that we were able to use data, real data to help kill this bill. And, you know, that there's a lack of data across our state, you know, and I'm glad that I was able to do this one report, but the one criticism that I had from the, about the report was, okay, great, Jeff, you told us what the recidivism rate was for people who got out on zero bail, but what was the control group? What, what is, what was it for people who had posted bail? Well, so that was 2.0. And so I just recently, a few weeks ago, published that study. And what we found was staggering. The study showed that people who were released on zero bail compared to a, a similar group of people released on posted bail, similar demographics, similar crimes. Here's the difference. Those on zero bail committed 163% more crime than those posted who posted bail and those on zero bail committed 200% more violent crime than those who had been released on bail. In every single category, people who were released from custody on zero bail reoffended at a higher rate, every crime type faster, more often. It, it was a complete shock to me, frankly, how aggravated the zero bail data looked and we put it out in a report and it went viral and it's, it's gone national. It's been talked about in, you know, I'm told many, many state legislatures, they're now pulling up the, you know, the Yolo County report on zero bail. And, uh, it, you know, the data is what it is. I, I didn't put any opinion into it. It just, here it is. And to me, I, I just think there's such a, a lack of real thoughtful analysis going on in Sacramento on some of these policies. And I've seen it. I know you saw it too. You know, lawmakers come up with these bill ideas based on an emotion or, you know, a, a story. And 
they push these without having real data to back up their claims. And the fact that, you know, these studies that we've done in YOLO help kill one bill and, and now I hope are, you know, illuminating the conversation in Sacramento on any further zero bill bills goes to show you how important it is that the legislature, that the policymakers have good data, how important it is that district attorneys around California collect that data, not just district attorneys, all law enforcement. And I also think it, the takeaways here are, you know, people, voters, everyday citizens just need to pay attention to the details. The devil is in the details. And, you know, this history that we recovered today exposed a lot of the devil in these details. And there are groups, national groups, well-funded groups that are committed to implementing these radical reforms. And they're not really concerned, frankly, with the details. That's what I've learned. Those are the takeaways. I mean, if people are not paying attention and getting involved and, and it could be anything, it could be getting involved in a neighborhood watch group that then has regular meetings with lawmakers. And that's a key, regular meetings with lawmakers, you know, meeting your district attorney, knowing who your district attorney is in your community, because there are some rogue district attorneys in California that are doing crazy things and they're ignoring the law. And that's going to have an immediate profound effect in your community. So know your DA and then know your lawmakers, um, support good ones, you know, and, and know, I mean, people really have to understand that there are people with deep pockets who don't even live in California, who are writing checks for millions of dollars, in some cases to elect representatives that have very extreme agendas. And the only way we can combat that as Californians is to get involved ourselves and support good candidates. And that means, you know, going and meeting them, writing checks for these candidates, getting involved in some of the organizations that fight for victims' rights, like Crime Victims United, um, carefully looking at the organizations that are doing work in public safety and making sure that you're supporting ones that are doing things that make sense. Because there's a lot that, as you know, there's a lot of organizations out there that claim to be about public safety that are not friends of public safety. And so, you know, voters just need to educate themselves. And I know that that's big lift. And again, you know, my county, I'll just tell you, I mean, I've done some things that I'm really proud of here, you know, like um, just recently I implemented a, a program around total data transparency. I'm the most transparent DA in the country. I have all my data up. The public can see it. I partnered with Stanford and created a race blind charging program so that when I charge cases or my 40 deputy DAs charge cases, we don't know the race of the suspect, the victim, the witnesses. Lady Justice is blind in my county. I sponsored that law. The governor signed it. It's now a statewide deal. And so these are like smart reforms. These are things that, you know, I'm committed to and, and I believe improve the system. But there's the devil in the details on some of these other things we've talked about today are, you know, extremely concerning to me. And, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, I'm tired of seeing my friends and family leave California and I've lost count. I've lost count of how many have left because they're tired of what's happening. And a lot of it is absolutely related to the decay and the crime 
and just the, the feeling of things aren't, this isn't the golden state anymore. A lot of people have told me that and I'm born and raised here and I'm a career public servant. I want to fight for it. Um, for the listeners out there, um, I hope you keep listening to these podcasts. You can find us on InsideCrimeFiles.com and listen to more about the true consequences of crime and the innovation, the inspiration that comes out of these cases. So I just thank you all. Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. Olas Media.